Welcome to 20-Minute Bible Study. My name is Adam, the pastor of Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. And while you turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 1, I am going to start our timer. 20 minutes on the clock. Let's get going. Last year, 2019, Faith on Hill Church studied the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis ends with Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac, and his 12 sons and their wives and his daughters and any husbands that came along or children or grandchildren going to the land of Egypt because of a severe famine. And Jacob's second youngest son, Joseph, had become the number two guy, the right-hand man, second most powerful only to Pharaoh the king in the land of Egypt, and they settled there. Now, the space between the end of the book of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus is slightly debated. In one place, the Bible says it was about 430 years. In another place, the Bible says it was about 400, and yet another place speaks of about 230 years. Which is it? Personally, I tend to believe the 430 number as a more exact number. And what I think the 400-year number is, is the same thing that I do and that all of us do, which is to round off. If if something took 430 years and then somebody said, hey, Adam, how long did that take? You'd say, oh, about 400 years, give or take. It, it, the, p- the point isn't the specific year. The point is the general length of time. Now, that 200, 230 number, I believe, a- and the scholars that I've read seem to agree on this, that that probably is talking about the length of time that the children of Israel were enslaved. Spoiler alert, the story starts out with them enslaved. And they were in the land for 180 years, 170 years, and then around that point is when their enslavement began. So this is about 400, 430 years after the end of the book of Genesis and about 200 to 230 years into the enslavement of the Jewish people in Egypt. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went into Egypt with Jacob. Jacob was renamed by God Israel. And so the sons of Israel is his family, and Jacob he is also referred to. It's like a first and a last name in that way. Each with his family, verse 2, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, my Bible, and I'm sure yours does too, has a note that says that in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint, which was the uh, translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek that took place... uh, hundred years or so before Jesus's time that that they say 75 years instead of 70. I appreciate the transparency of Christian scholars, Bible scholars who say, hey, the majority of our texts say 70, but there are these other very important ancient manuscripts that say 75. 
So one of two things is going on there. Either there is an actual disagreement in the text and it doesn't really affect anything important. It's just a, was it 70 or 75? The other way to look at it, and this is the way that I, I tend to view it, is that the 75 number includes Joseph and his family already in Egypt, whereas the 70 number reflects Jacob and those who were brought to Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis. Either way, doesn't matter. But the, the point is, whether there's 70 or 75 people, it's easy to understand how in a few hundred years, exponential growth had happened and there was a large contingent of people. Depending on which scholar and which estimate you read, it's anywhere from about 600,000 people at the time of the Exodus, somewhere between 600,000 and 2 million. Those are kind of the two ends of the spectrum. But either way, it's not hard. When you start off with 75 people who are uh, healthy and, and living in, in what at for that era was really a, a good place to live, um, it's not hard to see how exponential growth would take hold and this family of 75 people would quickly expand into the hundreds of thousands and maybe even millions by that point. Verse 6 says, Joseph and all his brothers of all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly and increased in number and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And like we said, this started somewhere between uh, 130 to 280 years into the children of Israel's time in Egypt. Verse 11 says, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. By the way, nowhere does the Bible claim that the Jewish people built the pyramids. And every so often I'll read a blog or I'll see a YouTube video or something where somebody says, see, science disproves the Bible. The, the, the Jewish people never built the pyramids. Well, that's not what the Bible claims. And so it does claim that they were slaves. It claims that they helped build cities. And I don't think there's anyone who disputes that the Egyptians as a powerful nation in that day would have used forced labor to help build their empire. But the Bible, don't, don't try to disprove claims the Bible doesn't make. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during their childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. So they let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? But the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So, there were probably more than two midwives. 
if there was a midwives group or union or association, these were probably the two leaders of that group. They also weren't necessarily Hebrew. They might have been, but they also might have been Egyptians or at least non-Hebrews. And they were the ones who specialized in going to the Jewish community to act as health care for the women giving birth. Either way, um, you know, we, we just know that this is what's going on. And it says that they feared God, so they did not listen to the Pharaoh. I personally enjoy that they used Pharaoh's own racism against him. Because when you think about it, what did they do? Uh, they said, oh, you know, Jewish women are savages, and they're obviously so savage and so, uh, you know, Animal, animalistic, you know, they just give birth right away, and they're not like our refined and delicate Egyptian women, you know. And, and of course, that's, that's foolishness, and that sort of racism exists, sadly, to this day. But I, I personally enjoy when somebody uses the stupidity of racism against a racist. That just amuses me greatly. But because they did what was right, verse 20 says that God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And Pharaoh gave strict orders to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile and let every girl live. So what Pharaoh is saying is if you were one of the uh, slavers, if you were one of the people uh, in charge of forced labor and you saw a, a baby boy, you were just to go grab it, take it, and throw it in the river. Christians, people of God, those who fear God should value life. All life. I firmly believe that the, the biblical model is a pro-life position. It might have been one thing in the 60s to say it's the baby is just a fetus, just a, a bunch of tissue. It's another thing now. And if you take the pro-life and pro-abortion debate out of it, if you take the agendas out of it and just have the science, and you were to sit there and look at the ultrasounds and the 3D imaging and the heartbeat and all of the vital signs that can be detected while the baby is in the womb, I believe that if you take the agenda out of it, you would come scientifically to a pro-life position. That is life. I also think it's a very fair criticism that my friends who are pro-choice, pro-abortion, my friends who are pro-abortion make towards Christians who are pro-life. And they say, you guys only care about the baby before it's born, and then once the baby is born, and if the baby's born into poverty or the baby's born the wrong color or culture or whatever, then you don't care. I'll tell you, that's a criticism I've had to really come to terms with the implications of. I think it's a fair criticism, and I think it's one that those who fear God, like the midwives did, are going to have to wrestle with in this day. What does it mean to be pro all life. Now, 
I say all that knowing the statistics, and I would be shocked if there hadn't been someone at Faith on Hill during the time I've been the pastor here who had had an, who had, had an abortion. I'd be shocked if there wasn't someone who had had an abortion. I would be shocked if there wasn't someone who had driven someone, their girlfriend, their wife, their partner, uh, somebody they knew, to a clinic to have an abortion. It's not just not just women who have guilt over these things. I've, I've known men who, have, who years, decades later, have still felt horrible, racking guilt for that. The grace of God is so huge and so big. And just because that was something that was part of your story, it does not mean that God condemns you, that God does not have great love for you, and the church should be no different. Someone should be able to be open and honest if they choose to be. I'm not saying you have to be, but if you choose to be open and honest about that part of your journey without fear of condemnation from the church. And I hope that anyone who loves Jesus and has experienced the grace of God, who is listening to my voice, would say amen to that. You can be pro-life and not condemn people. You can be pro-life and not make assumptions about people who have chosen, for whatever reason, to have or help someone have an abortion. Now, in verse 1, chapter 2, it says that a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that it was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer... Or so, sorry, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with pitch and tar, and she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, and his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. This order of the Pharaoh was easy if you're from a distance. It's another thing to be right there. You can be callous from a distance. It's a lot harder when you're in the middle of it. And here is a couple that just fell in love. They got married. They loved each other. Their first child is a girl. No problem. Uh, We know that they had a son as well. We will find out later. But they were old enough to not be affected by this. And then they had another child, a son, during this horrible, tragic time. And they would not do evil. And they, out of love, they hid their child, but there came a point where you can only hide a child for so long. People are going to start to ask. So she, she did what Pharaoh said. You said, throw the child in the river? Okay. And she made this protective basket, and she puts the child in the river, but not to harm him, but to trust God. And his sister watches over him. And verse 5 It says that then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. And she saw the basket out among the reeds and sent her female slaves to get it. And she opened it, and she saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get it, or shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby 
and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And apparently, uh, the name Moses sounds like the Hebrew word for drawing out, like you would draw something out of the well. Pharaoh's daughter knew what was going on. She gets this baby. She knows where the baby comes from. And then a little girl runs up to her and says, hey, I just happen to know somebody uh, who could nurse the child for you. Pharaoh's daughter's not dumb. She knows what's going on. What's interesting to me is that she does the right thing, even though it is her father that has ordered the death of this baby. I posted something on my Facebook recently, and I said, if you only see people as the other, then you will miss the opportunity to be their friend. And I got some pushback from that. But let me tell you this. If you were somebody who was being oppressed by the Egyptians, if you were a, a Hebrew that's being oppressed by the Egyptians then, and you only saw all Egyptians as evil, then you would have missed out on the good thing happening from the daughter of the Pharaoh. If you only saw all Jews as worthless and you were an Egyptian, then you would not have valued life the way that Pharaoh's daughter did. There is something about seeing people as made in the image of God. Fear drives injustice. Why did Pharaoh enslave the Hebrews? It was out of fear. I mean, there was greed, too. They were building store cities. They were, they were helping to build up the economy. But it was fear. So much racism and prejudice is built on fear. So much animosity in all directions is built on not knowing people. It's, it's always humorous to me. If I made this statement, it would be good for Christians to get to know Mormons and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and atheists. It would be good for young people to get to know old people. It would be good for old people to get to know young people. It would be good if, if you, uh, as a uh, heterosexual, devout Christian, knew a non-believing uh, LGBTQ plus person. If I said those things, people would, uh, my friends who are atheists or, or progressive or whatever would say, yes, I, that's good. But it's funny how many of them don't, don't know any uh, or are not friends with any conservative uh, Christians or, or people of faith. And I'm, by the way, when I'm saying conservative, I'm not political. I'm staying out of politics. I'm not conservative. I'm not progressive. Uh, I'm, I'm here for the kingdom of heaven, not for the kingdoms of this world. But what I'm saying is this, when you only see people as the other, then you will not know them, and then because of that ignorance, you will start to have fear. And it was out of fear. He didn't, the Pharaoh didn't know anything about Joseph. Joseph meant nothing to him. And if he had known that Joseph and the descendants of Jacob, the children of Israel, had been friends to Egypt, he might not have feared. And if the Jewish people had only seen the Egyptians as the other, as all evil, then they would miss the thing that Pharaoh's daughter did. As our time comes to a close, I want to end in prayer.
God, our Father, help us to cast out fear in our hearts. Help us to operate from a place of faith. Help us to do the right thing even when everything seems against it. Help us to stand against injustice even when it comes from our own tribe. Help us to be bringers of life and peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you soon on another episode of 20-Minute Bible Study.